today on Ag News Daily. As strange as it may sound, that the primary energy component on a forward look of a diet three years from now is probably not corn. Listeners, welcome back. July 21st, 2023, Friday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner and Delaney here to jump into some week-ending news. Do you got a lot of news today, Tanner, or just a little? Just a little. I mean, of course, we're still seeing uh, extreme heat. We do have some severe thunderstorm warnings in effect for northern Oklahoma. Wind gusts up to 70 miles per hour and are moving east through the region. Uh, Those warnings, though, won't last through the entire day today. We still have our flood warnings in parts of Kansas, western Kansas there, where two to four inches of rain have already fallen. Also want to make our urban listeners a little bit aware in that same area as local drainage systems are continuing to fill up from stormwater. Eastern Nebraska, western Iowa will see some non-severe possibility of storms this afternoon into this evening. And we still see that extreme heat pushing through the area. Extreme heat, unfortunately, has been killing people. And there's more heat to come. We've had heat in the United States, but we also have other countries around the world that are experiencing the hotness. We've had record stretches in Florida. Sea surface temperatures are now around the Florida Peninsula, reaching nearly 100 degrees. The powerful heat has come to Europe. It's also uh, hit some of the friends in Africa. Unfortunately, since 2000, uh, since 2000, an average of 20,000 people have died from extreme heat, but they're stating due to this heat here in the summer of 2022 and what we're seeing in 2023, the number could be in excess of 70,000. So we're looking at areas of Europe, Africa, America, obviously some areas that could use some extra precaution when working outside in heat like this. Well, Tanner, India is also facing some extreme weather challenges as they are heading into their monsoon season. And because of that, they're expected to have a really terrible monsoon season this year. India has gone ahead and banned all exports of non-Basmati rice due to food inflation and the poor start to their season. They said food prices in India have dramatically increased this year, 15%. And in in, in Delhi specifically there in India, an 8% overall in the nation. And because of that, they've decided to ban rice exports. Now, here's why this matters. India makes up about 40% of the world's export market when it comes to rice. And rice is a staple food for about half of the world's population due to its high nutritional value, but also cheapness and price to buy. It also more specifically makes up about 90% of the food diet for Asian countries in particular. And so while this monsoon season has started off early here, India has received a lot of rain and they're thinking production is gonna be fairly low, hence the ban on export scanner. And this ban will likely have an impact in a lot of other markets, but especially in the rice markets. Uh, The other scenario that could be playing out here is a similar export ban on palm oil as well, which of course is used in a variety of different cooking, uh, production, manufacturing, and other uses as well. So those two markets, it sounds like, are definitely ones to watch here in the near-term future. And we could see a short-term spike 
in prices uh, due to a lack of supply or a scare of lack of supply on the market. Yeah, that's not good news. We also have ag economists that are not sharing a great outlook. In July, the ag economist monthly monitoring shows that the weather extremes and wild swings in commodity markets are the two biggest factors that will impact short-term outlooks, but they expressed maybe a more, may f- more favorable view in the long term. The second survey of the year, a joint effort between the University of Missouri and Farm Journal, took the pulse of nearly 60 economists. The monthly survey showed several key changes from the last report. They predict that cattle and hog prices could continue to climb higher this year. They state that they believe the USDA's corn and soybean yield projections are still too high. To the survey, as we look through here, uh, looking out over the next 12 months, it could be a very short run into the positive, but they ultimately see net farm income declining over the next couple of years. We set a record in 2022. It looks like the net income uh, will fall in 2023. They're also potentially looking uh, at 2024 as another year with a little bit of a drop off. So it'd be interesting to see where the peg, the net income at the end of the year, obviously, but we'll continue to see where this is headed. When asked about corn prices, their estimate for 2023 and 2024 was from 499 to 480 as a trading range. It uh, is interesting to see as they talk about where their predictions are headed over the next six months for crop prices. They said ultimately the data with final yields, making sure our domestic and abroad demand is factored in as well as weather, and then geopolitical risks as we've been talking a lot, Delaney, when it comes to the Black Sea and China. So a lot of things coming in there and pretty much mixed results coming out of this pooled group of 60 economists. Well, the Black Sea and China is where I wanna take this discussion next, Tanner, because we've now seen the fourth consecutive night of Russia targeting Ukraine port infrastructure, making it fully clear that they're intending to stop the movement of grain and do whatever they can to make that happen. It does seem like the markets have now kind of chewed through that news and haven't really reacted to this latest round of attacks. But Russia seems to be following, a lot of are speculating here, that they're following a two-phase plan to stop grain exports. First is attacking the ports to disable them and prevent them from their ability to ship. And the second is to create fear among shippers uh, to try to keep them from approaching Ukrainian water scanners. So now as far as next steps go for the rest of the world, the United Nations Security Council will meet today to discuss the quote-unquote humanitarian consequences of Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain Initiative. There's a couple of different ways that folks are speculating that this could go. The big question is, will the United Nations decide to become more involved in the war by taking some additional steps against Russia, which ultimately will anger President Putin? And will that lead him in return to take some additional action? They're also wondering, does it mean that the United Nations will offer, you know, the quote unquote safe corridor path of protection for ships to keep grain flowing, potentially pulling other nations into the war as well. 
And again, what will President Putin's response be to that? So I'm sure we'll have some updates, Scanner, for our listeners about how that meeting goes uh, on Monday. Yeah, we certainly will. I've got a couple of non-traditional ag articles from Successful Farming to hit next. Missouri has a $500,000 incentive now for urban farmers if growers can figure out how to get it. So the state budget allocates small grants to support projects that address food insecurity. Still, critics are arguing that the grant creates obstacles in accessing the funds. The $500,000 is welcomed by small growers in the area. There's a set of orchard owners in Kansas City's Swope Park that provide fresh fruit to their community. However, as stated in their testimonial that there's a difference between setting priorities of I can raise this crop and sell it and make a assured dollar, or I can take in a substantial amount of time to apply for this grant to possibly not get awarded it. Said, it's a hard decision to make when you are super broke, was the exact quote, Delaney. They are definitely talking about how long it takes for the grant application process to be filled out with the uncertainty of knowing whether or not they will get those funds. So now Kansas City uh, officers and those in legislature are navigating ways to provide support to small farmers without making it extremely difficult. We also see the House and the Senate are looking at companion bills that would allow hemp-derived cannibal, uh, also known as CBD, to be used as dietary supplements, foods, and in beverages. The bill's sponsors are stating this would allow hemp to be uh, used in these areas as far as growing and providing direction for the FDA. The FDA stated that there is insufficient research on CBD safety and it would not write regulations for human or animal use unless Congress was to act. They said we need to have a bill to ensure the equal and safe access to hemp-derived CBD. The Senate Finance Committee is what is taking on and pushing this bill forward. Industrial hemp was legalized in 2008 by farm law and the CBD is regarded as likely to hit consumers and key establishments as a cash crop, but the growth in the hemp industry has been inhibited by the lack of federal regulation, which is why these companion bills are looking at being pushed through. Melanie? Well, Tanner, I think I am about out of news for today. What about you? Yeah, that's really all I have. I mean, you hit on the Russia and Ukraine battle. There's still more missile strikes on grain warehouses. The Ukraine military says that uh, they've put some attacks on Moscow. So uh, everything seems to still be up in arms on that side of the country, but that's all I had left to talk about. Awesome. Well, I think then we better hit markets here really quickly before we get into our conversation today, chatting about carbon markets and their potential impact for the livestock industry of all industries. But when we look at the livestock markets and grain markets here this morning at the midday, September corn is down five and a half cents at 5.30 and a quarter. Dece new crop corn down seven and three quarters cents at 5.38 and a half. In soybeans here at the mid-morning trade, we are seeing August soybeans up three cents at 14.90. November soybeans down five and a quarter cents at 13.90. Tanner, as we hop over to look at the livestock market here in the mid-morning, we are seeing some mixed trade when it comes to where markets are at. As far as August live cattle here at the mid-morning, they are down 42 and a half cents at a buck 79.87. 
August feeder cattle up 50 cents at 250.32, and August lean hogs up 27.5 cents, breaking above $100 for the first time in quite some time at 190. Tanner, we are turning over our conversation to chat with Joe Kearns about carbon and its impact for the livestock markets. Well, folks, we are chatting today with Joe Kearns of Partners for Production Agriculture, located in Ames, Iowa. And Joe, I had the pleasure of hearing you speak a few weeks ago at the Iowa Swine Day Summit, focusing on the topic of carbon markets and how specifically they're going to impact the livestock industry. So super excited to dig more into this topic with you today. Happy to be here with you. So, Joe, before we get into talking carbon markets, tell us a little bit more about your background. Sure. Uh, uh, grew up in, in Iowa, went to uh, a big eight education, uh, Iowa State University, got out in the middle of the farm crisis when you were just happy to have a job. Not not like uh, the folks graduating today where it's like literally 99.7% of the of the agricultural students get jobs and the other 0.3% want to live in mom's basement. We were fighting tooth and nail to find anything that uh, represented gainful employment. I uh, ended up uh, working for Archer Daniels Midland, uh, uh, loved what I did for the grain side of it there. Uh, spent about five years there, then uh, uh, had an opportunity to move to Chicago to work with Continental Grain. Uh, I was a floor runner on there. I was not a floor trader. I was officially a phone clerk and a runner uh, down on the board of trade, but that really ignited my passion for the transactional piece of the business and how it all started to evolve. And back in the good old days, there's lots of screaming and yelling and excitement. Uh, it was a lot of fun. F- uh, from there, there was a little startup in Missouri called Premium Standard Farms that had reached out to me and contacted me. I became the director of procurement down there. Uh, that uh, led me then to Iowa Select, where I worked with and for Jeff Hansen for 15 years in the best education you could possibly ask for. In 2008, I went out on my own and started a consulting entity. And today we are uh, 25 of us. We touch approximately 40% of uh, the pork production in the United States in some form or another. So we've carved out a nice little niche out of a narrow, thin slice of society. That does sound like a nice little niche. And obviously, Delaney got to hear you speak before, but our goal today is to bring our listeners some of your insights, especially as it relates to the carbon market. So as you are working with your clients, what's the general consensus over the developments of the carbon market to this date? So, so let's, let's take a step backwards and uh, uh, kind of the credentials that get you here. And through a lot of life, it's serendipity. As I found myself in uh, 2001 down at a meeting uh, with uh, senators and congressmen regarding two topics. And one was the regulation of the carbon market. And the second was, uh, what are we going to do about Bitcoin? Is it an SEC item? Is it a security or is it a CFTC? Is it a commodity? And uh, uh, I came away from that learning. Nobody knows the answer to either one of those, but it started me on this journey of trying to better understand just what these impacts are going to be. I can't speak to Bitcoin. It still doesn't make any sense to me, and I've had it explained four times. Uh, The carbon markets, you can understand the intersection of agriculture with our production practices and the carbon sequestering that just comes from the general agronomic practices and then how that starts to impact the Midwest. Uh, uh, So that that was kind of the backdrop. Um, I preempted myself at the Iowa Swine Day uh, by indicating that, that if we're taking a look selling a low-carbon pork chop anytime soon, I'm afraid that's not where the, where the venue is that's going to introduce us into carbon markets and trade. It's more than likely going to be on the agronomic side. Uh, and inside of animal agriculture, of course, we have a very, very linear tie to the agronomic side as they supply the feedstuffs that go into the production 
uh, of every species that we produce. And so when, when you take a step back and, and start to evaluate, where does this go? I think there's very three, three very distinct buckets that we're going to fall in. And, and the first one is uh, renewable diesel, and renewable diesel is not biodiesel. Uh, biodiesel came along, and I would contend, um, was a, uh, a, a, an answer to a problem that did not exist at that point in time, where all we're doing is really stripping off that glycerol backbone, uh, replacing it with a methyl ester, and somehow considering that to be societal progress. It seems, seems a bit of a stretch. Uh, very energy inefficient, had to be subsidized um, um, in a very marked fashion, a dollar gallon, in order to encourage uh, that development of that market. I, I don't see that one as being sustainable. Of course, we'd had ethanol uh, back from the early 2000s, and so the biofuels industry uh, was was no longer nascent. We kind of knew how this game all plays, and along comes renewable diesel. And renewable diesel uh, is very different uh, than biodiesel. Renewable diesel is uh, chemically nearly identical to its petroleum-derived brethren. It can go in the pipeline. It doesn't have the same cold weather restrictions that biodiesel would have in some of the uh, more negative handling characteristics. And so it truly is an advancement of the development of turning uh, soybean oil and product in, into a fuel, which again, from a societal standpoint, you've got to sit back and question just a little bit. Uh, but let's not, let's not fight about uh, ethics here. Let's just talk about what is. And this, this one it absolutely falls in the category of what is. We are going to have over the next three years an increase of roughly 27% of the crush capacity in the United States, all of it spurned on by uh, the quest for renewable diesel and the low carbon fuel standards coming out of California and then being adopted by other states. And this is, this is a, uh, an item that crosses every single side of the aisle. Uh, if you find yourself left of the political spectrum, uh, the introduction of a renewable product uh, for the decarbonization, uh, certainly it would, it would appear to be attractive. And if you're on the right side of the political spectrum with uh, a little bit more capitalism associated with it, there's an opportunity to make some money. And so the intersection of these two items does something that we were very rarely have in Washington, D.C., and that is a, a coalition that everybody supports it and nods their head. So I think that you've got uh, some underpinnings that are undeniable in this one. It also uh, faces a cross-section uh, geographically where we are satisfying what California is asking. I don't know if we're going to get into Prop 12 discussion, but there's a whole, there's a whole other parallel and contrast inside of that. But as far as renewable diesel is concerned, we're answering the, the call for a particular state's request and doing so uh, through Midwestern farmers. So now we have California that's happy. Uh, the refiners are largely down in the south in Texas area. They're happy. And of course, all the Midwestern uh, grain producers are, are very, very pleased with this development. And so as we add these crush facilities, it's going to change a lot of different dynamics of what we're accustomed to. Guys, we're on, we're on the cusp of changing agriculture like it's never seen before. And I know that sounds like it's a, a great big mouthful or something that's, that's melodramatic, but I do believe it's true. Uh, between renewable diesel, uh, that looks like it wants someplace in the neighborhood of 15 million acres just for that. Now, it's not 15 million additional acres. It'll have obviously substitute out of other uh, uh, other uses right now, notably probably export markets. 
Uh, and then you, you parallel that with, uh, with the, the second bucket that I'd like to reference, and that's sustainable aviation fuel. And that might be new to some of your listeners. Uh, this was a concept that was codified in September of 2022 by the Biden administration. It was called the Grand Challenge. And the goal is to produce uh, 10% of the uh, jet fuel used in the United States from a renewable source. And you can do that one of three ways. You can either take a great big molecule and cleave it, which is what we do with uh, renewable diesel. We can take a small molecule like ethanol and, and, and push them all together. You've got, to, you've got to take off the oxygen, which is, again, an energy-intensive piece, or we can synthesize it. You know, the, only, the only two proven technologies are number one and number two. And so as we have this push to have uh, 10% of the aviation fuel as a renewable source by 2030, agriculture sits right in the crosshairs of what that looks like. Uh, the ultimate goal would be to go 100%. And if you would Google any airline stock about what their ESG policy looks like, it will be front and center. So you've got legs behind uh, the secondary piece. So the, the, the first item that I addressed with you was renewable diesel has political strength. The second one has industry strength strength with uh, the board of directors of these companies pledging that, yes, this is our goal, and therefore the economic underpinnings also appear to be uh, relatively decent. We've got a good chance of pushing this one through. There are credits, uh, 45Q credits, that, uh, that also help with the carbon sequestering. And so we've got a government program that is really going to twist, in my opinion, uh, the shape of the agronomic sector. And those of us involved in animal agriculture also need to be paying attention of what that looks like. Just to kind of complete this thought process, the third bucket that I referenced uh, during my talk uh, was the carbon sequestering pipeline. And that has a hearing coming up at the end of August that will really start to dictate what the fate looks like. Uh, Iowa Utilities Board will be holding uh, a conference in Fort Dodge. I want to say it's the 23rd of August. And that will, uh, if that gets the nod of go ahead, there's a couple other hurdles. You've got to get some EPA clearance for the drilling of the wells for the sequestering of the carbon dioxide coming off of ethanol production that eventually turns into limestone. So that is permanent sequestering. And then you've got the financial piece. And of those three pieces, Iowa Utilities Board uh, the financial component and getting the EPA sign off, the financial component is there. No, normally, when you'd have a project of this scope and scale, you'd say, oh, it's a great idea. How are we going to finance it? And then everybody looks at each other. This one's not the case. This one, this one has the financial underpinnings in place. And so it is literally a, a matter of uh, getting the appropriate regulatory approvals before we move forward. That will set the stage. And, and the, the scenario that I just laid out for you is probably the next three to five years creates an incredible transition from what we know right now as a corn or a soy balance sheet or the impact to the profitability of a Midwestern producer. And it really starts to dictate a, a completely different pace rolling forward. And you said also, you got to focus, we start with the agronomic side before we really see that impact on the livestock side. But you work, like you said, primarily with livestock or hog farmers. So how do we see those three buckets impacting the carbon market and profitability for swine producers specifically. Delaney, this might be the best piece is because when this all first started rollout, my, my initial reaction was to hyperventilate and, and start to fret about the future until you start to put together the formulation. And uh, as strange as it may sound that the primary energy component on a forward look of a diet three years from now is probably not corn. It's absolutely not fat. All the, all the, uh, the fat energy will be going into the renewable diesel. 
but it does look like we're going to be feeding soybean meal for its energy value. And there's been a lot of studies, and of course, this has prompted a lot more to go on. But soybean meal has approximately 92% of the energy of corn. And so it's a very viable source of energy. And so as these processing facilities uh, start to, to run as the primary driver being soybean oil, soybean meal then falls down to the residual product and has to move at market clearing prices. And some of the, some of the work that we've done uh, would, would indicate that it can get down to $200 per ton or less and become a primary source. And just uh, we, we talk a lot about cost per bushel and cost per ton. And just, just for your listeners, $200 a ton is the same thing as $6 per bushel. So, so from an energy standpoint, as well as uh, uh, just kind of that conversion. So just kind of an easy little metric to get in your head. So we're, we're going to change things. Uh, and by the way, uh, number one, a monogastric, uh, a chicken or a hog is well suited for the digestion of soybean meal. Uh, and the price of the cost of the ration will actually go down. And so what would appear to be a very sharp contrast on the surface, once you drill back down onto it, you, there is a livable solution that you can find. So what's holding it back from farmers making decisions to start switching immediately. Are we waiting for a precedent? Uh, yes, actually, what we're waiting for is the physical construction of the processing facilities that then generate that demand. And they're all in some stage of, of I'd, I'd take them all out of the planning stage. We had the Shell Rock facility come online in northeast Iowa here earlier this year. You're going to see um, its sister plant in Alta, Iowa, Northwest Iowa, come online sometime mid-year 2024. And then there's a slate of approximately 15 more plants that walk through a schedule of coming online. So by the time we get to the planting season 24 and certainly 25, is the influence of this increased demand is going to make itself felt. And you're, you're already seeing this. That if you just simply take uh, 2024 new crop futures of both corn and soy, uh, that, that right now we are absolutely favoring the planting of soybeans from a profitability standpoint uh, rather than corn. Now, now, let's play stop the music for just one moment. What do farmers do? Mm, they like to plant corn. And we saw that in spades this year from the March report to the June report that even though the economics didn't necessarily justify it, but uh, we had the adjustment of 2 million more corn acres and 4 million less bean acres. So you do need that economic incentive in order to drive uh, the decision makers of independent producers. But I think this is going to evidence itself more and more as time wears on. But in direct answer to your question, we simply need to have the infrastructure in place for all of this to start moving forward, and it's being built as we speak. Joe, I have to think back to ethanol and the mm -hmm. buzz and attention that it got leading up, and it was supposed to be kind of the silver bullet for the corn market. Really, the way you're painting this for the soybean market is it's going to be this silver bullet for both livestock and row crop producers. So I feel like we got to be a little bit hesitant to fully buy into this picture. Sell, sell us on this. I mean, Three to five years, it sounds like it's going to have huge impacts to producers' balance sheets. Is it, is it going to happen? Is it realistic? I think it's very realistic, and let's let's take a step back in time about what was the impetus to bring us into the ethanol era, uh, and it was an event called 9/11, uh, when when the United States 
felt that it was uh, at threat to to foreign oil sources, and we needed our own uh, consumable BTUs in a liquid form. And I and I, I mean that very specifically. And the the United States is energy independent on BTUs as we sit right now. The problem is form, is we've got a lot of natural gas, and we don't have a whole lot of natural gas burning vehicles, of course, uh, inside of a fleet. There are some, uh, but but the the Bush administration in response. Uh, to that activity initiated and, and, and propagated the ethanol policy uh, that, that rocked our world. Uh, 40% of our corn right now goes into ethanol, and in 2005, it was 2 or 3%. I mean, we, we, we uh, really built up that, that industry over the course of seven or eight years. Uh, the livestock side kind of, uh, I think, was a forgotten child in, in the, the process. Livestock's not being forgotten this time around. Uh, as I think I shared with you, I sit on a task force with sustainable aviation fuel as kind of the livestock representative and what are the trickle-down effects. And so I do think that we've got a voice at the table. Uh, the, the rations are doable. We're not introducing a commodity, in the, in, and I'm referencing soybean meal here, that, that is an unknown. Keep in mind, guys, we had no clue how to feed DDGs back in 2005. And we learned, we learned very, very quickly. Uh, DDG production will still be hanging around because of the ethanol production, specifically as ethanol uh, uh, converts into isobutyrol, which is then used uh, as uh, the, 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 the substance that uh, generates uh, sustainable aviation fuel. So I see your, your uh, from the countryside standpoint, Delaney, to your point, what happens to the fabric of my communities? Nothing. These ethanol plants continue to employ people. They still run 5.4 billion bushels per year through their collective turnstiles. Uh, the economics are in place. Uh, we've added another component where, where now I, I am fighting, if you will, for that acre of whether it produces corn or soybeans. Uh, that is good for the agronomic sector. Uh, it also, by coincidence, in my uh, frank opinion is we were not the first consideration, but just it happened to work out that when you walk through the economics is that uh, the livestock sector actually benefits. I'm going to have a slight carve out here. The ruminant does not have the same benefit is the, uh, uh, whether it's a dairy cow or beef cattle don't get the same benefit. So if there has to be a winner or a loser in here, I would, I would call uh, the, the beef and the dairy industry perhaps a little less enthusiastic uh, in relationship to the monogastric, the chickens or the pigs, just the, the way the digestion system works there. So uh, I think all in all that this is a huge win for uh, Midwestern agriculture. Um, my libertarian bent doesn't necessarily embrace how it came about. I, I, would, I would much rather have a laissez-faire uh, type of environment where, where the, the commercial industry gets to pick winners and losers. And also, I think we can be very realistic and we can't deny uh, the reality of the, the politics behind this one and the drivers that are going to be of great benefit to the Midwest by complete accident. I don't, I don't think it was uh, the intent of the California lawmakers when they, when they were signing legislation to address uh, climate change or, or carbon sequestering that those, those guys in Iowa are really going to be the big beneficiaries. I don't think that there was that linear type of thinking. That's what's happened. Is I do believe that uh, the Midwest is going to be the huge beneficiary from these energy policies as they uh, relate to carbon sequestering.
Well, Joe, this has been a wealth of knowledge, and I know we only scratched the surface, <laughs> but we're, we're running out of time for today. So if our listeners want to ask you more questions or they want to follow with you, what's the best way for them to look you up? Sure. Phone number here is uh, 515-268-8888, pfpag.com. We'll, we'll put you on the website, and I'd be happy to address this further uh, as needed. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Our listeners appreciate it, and so do we. Well, there you go, Delaney. Very informational interview. Appreciate having him on. We'll probably do that again with him being so local. So, listeners, thanks for hanging out with us for another week. Enjoy your weekend. Stay cool, and we'll be back to talk to you again next week. But for today, Delaney, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.